He turns. He fires for the win. He's got the bucket at the buzzer. Weber back to Bibby. Has the open shot. Ladies and gentlemen, up on those feet. Put those hands together. And we'll meet tonight starting five for your Sacramento. Welcome to the King's Beat Podcast. I am James Ham, your King's Insider for ESPN 1320 and the King's Beat. Joining me, Mr. Brendan Nunez from the King's Herald and the King's Pulse Podcast. Brendan, what's going on, man? Not too much, James. Um, we're in the sprint here, as I have heard you use the wording. And then after you've said that, I've seen it around a little bit. I learned this maybe isn't a James Ham term like I thought it was. Um, and the sprint's not... At a great start, not gonna lie. Yeah, the well, the sprint's not at a great start, but I mean, realistically, like you should expect the Kings to lose to Denver twice and to beat OKC. So, um, I think the sprint is you didn't get the quickest takeoff, but uh, you're in it now, right? You're running, you're gunning. I mean, there's there's no time to stop now. Um, yeah, so I get what you're saying that uh, you know the the two losses to Denver, but um, again, you gotta you gotta win the games you're supposed to win, and then you gotta steal a couple of games that you're not supposed to win if you're gonna have any shot here. And uh, I, I think we're in an interesting position right here. We definitely are, um, and I think that yeah, I mean, obviously these big games of New Orleans, San Antonio, Dallas coming up, and then New York even after that. It's a huge stretch for the Kings. Even these next two, specifically New Orleans, San Antonio, teams they're rubbing shoulders with fighting for that 10 seed. It's almost like if it's almost must win games is what this feels like at this point. Even OKC's game last night felt like a must win game. And um, as much as you can find silver linings of, you know, being optimistic about the progress and growth we're seeing in the two man game of Fox and Domas, um, the team needs to that needs to translate to wins um, and, and winning basketball. And they still need more, whether that be guys step up or more additions. Um, there's a really, really big stretch coming up because they have some things to prove. Even they won by 20, 21 against OKC. Um, didn't feel like it at all. No, not when you're down by nine and the third. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that that game, I mean, it really never felt like it was totally out of control. It just felt like, OKC just kept punching, and that was good to see. And I think the team, the Kings, tightened up their defense. And actually, uh, like in the second half, they they did actually play better defense. You saw uh, Davion being disruptive. Okay, so before we dive into everything, let's just cover our basis. Um, again, you're listening to the Kings, uh, the Kings Beat podcast. Um, and uh, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to go down below and uh, subscribe. We're almost to a thousand. We're almost there almost there uh, but also give us a thumbs up um, leave comments like you're more than welcome to leave comments uh, a lot of times I jump in and start answering some of said comments uh, sometimes I don't have time um, you know life is what happens when you're making other plans uh, so if you're not subscribed to the to that uh, you should be uh, and then also uh, jump on with the the King's Beat um, the newsletter, uh, you subscribe, you can find all that down below in the description as well. Uh, if you're willing to jump on board, uh, we will have another happy hour next month. 
uh, well, actually this month, um, now that we're in March, and um, I think we're in March. I, I never know. It's, we oh, are. It's, it's, it's March 1st. We are, um, yeah. Yeah, there we go. So uh, make sure to jump on board uh, and uh, be a premium subscriber to the King's Beat so you get an invite to the happy hour. Um, lastly, merch is in. I'm going to be sending out merch on Wednesday. Uh, super excited. Uh, we got our first big shipment in from um, Brickhouse. Our guy Jim over at Brickhouse has done an amazing job on sweatshirts and um, hats and T-shirts. Uh, super excited about that. Um, again, you'll find that at the bottom of, of the newsletter and in the description down below if you want to go to the merch shop and get some cool stuff like this. Um, all right, Brendan. So the Kings beat the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, this really isn't the Oklahoma City Thunder, to be honest with you. Um, this is what I I always tell people. Like, the problem that the Kings have is if they want to go into tank mode, that there are so many teams in the league that are better at tanking than they are. And the Oklahoma City Thunder is uh, an embarrassment to the league and one of the worst teams in the history of the league uh, over the last couple of years. They're like the the process 76ers they don't care about winning and they have a whole bunch of nice injuries that they throw up but uh but realistically how many of those guys were actually injured um the injury list was you know Josh Giddy and Lou Dort and um and just about everyone outside of uh Shea Gilgis Alexander which uh tore up the kinks um I don't know just from your point of view do you struggle at all with the Oklahoma City Thunder and what they do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little much. Like, I think at some point they have to consolidate all their assets and put things together. Like, I thought that, you know, we could have seen it come around this this fall, this offseason if Tobias Harris needed to get dumped or if Ben Simmons needed to go somewhere for the sake of Philly signing James Harden. Um, but at some point, like, this has got to stop soon. Like that, I'm going to take issue if this goes into next year as well, where they're just, again, absolutely horrible. Because now you have Shy, you have Giddy, I like Baisley, and then say you're adding a top three, even top four guy. Like, I think going into next year, they've got to show some competence, at very least. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that they will, though. You know, that's, that's the problem. Like, I, I know Sam Presti's a genius. He has everybody's first-round picks. Um, but it, it just feels like like winning and losing just doesn't really matter. And he, he's going to go through, like, the the nine levels of hell and, um, you know, Dante's nine levels of hell and, and get crapped out the other side. Um, and, and hopefully by that point he'll have a bunch of great players. But eventually you're going to have to pay a guy like like Shea and you're gonna have to like Josh Giddy is a talent but I want to see Josh Giddy on a team that actually is good and, and see if he can actually be the type of player we're seeing right now and, and I, I guess the same could be said about Shea I mean he absolutely torched the Kings um you know that was I mean he was the main focus and they had no problems like feeding him and him going nuts he did whatever he wanted Nobody could stay in front of him. He was getting to the paint at will, um, drawing contact in the paint. I think he's one of the best finishers in the league, and he's so crafty and has great length. Um, so he's he's really good at drawing contact in that way. He is shooting poorly from three this year, but 
previously was a really good three-point shooter. I was actually kind of shocked when the broadcast was pointing out that he's really struggled from three this year um, because I still think of him as a really good three-point shooter. Um, And he hit all three that he attempted last night, Um, but he was on fire. And, And I think that the issue was that Sacramento let him, like I said, do whatever he wanted. It wasn't, they didn't make life difficult on him. And I think that's pretty crazy when he's their only guy, really. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but their second leading scorer was uh, Olivier Saar. <laughs> I did not. He scored 12 points. Their third was Trey Mann. Their fourth was Vit Greshke. I, I, I don't know, even know if I'm saying that right. Um, yeah, like it, it's like Team Rando. That's what you're talking about. I mean, you shouldn't give up 37 points, 10 assists, like seven rebounds, and a near triple-double to the one player that can hurt you but then again who else was gonna beat you so I guess the the mentality could be that I mean somebody has to score on every team and that's why you know guys who are on bad teams like this you're always slightly leery about the numbers that they put up and whether that translates to not only other teams if they were to go to another team and could they keep up those stats but if those stats will ever equate to winning and that's a problem and so uh, I again, I I would take Shea on my team without any any problems. Uh, like if the if the Kings decided to to go out and and offer up a their top pick for him, I'd be okay with that. Get a 23, 24 year old guy to add to the puzzle uh, that can really do a lot. I just you know would him and De'Aaron be able to coexist because of uh, their shooting woes and stuff like that? I, I think it'd be an issue. Yeah, um, and and I think that they just made. The Kings, that is, made the game a little too easy on OKC at times with, again, a lot of live ball turnovers for a sequence there. Um, And like early in the game, we saw a lot of pace from the Kings, and that kind of slowly faded away as the game went on, which I think is a little bit of a theme. Um, But I I think part of these turnovers is, again, the lack of spacing. Like most of these turnovers weren't um, OKC jumping passing lanes. It was Sacramento driving to the paint, getting stripped when they got there because three guys are on them and not giving a damn about whoever's in the corner. Um, and they'd rather give up that shot than anybody attacking the paint. And then they're getting stripped and guys are frustrated, maybe complaining at calls or not sprinting back fully. Um, and then OKC was getting too many transition opportunities. Yeah, I think uh, OKC was very aggressive. They were very handsy. Um, that's, that's a big reason why, you know, De'Aaron Fox and, and, uh, Harrison Barnes, like basically just camped out of the free throw line the entire game. Um, De'Aaron Fox missed a bunch of free throws, which he did talk about in post game, which I thought was interesting. Uh, just the frustration of missing free throws in that game, but realistically he's shooting 75% on the year. Um, and that's even, he's really close to 75% even after a really bad game. Um, I'm okay with his improvements at the line. Uh, but you know, again, I think that they were being disruptive. They were like, I I kind of feel like the thunder were gambling, like most of the game. Uh, they were running a bunch of double teams at DeMontis. Uh, they were running some triple teams at DeMontis. And for some reason, the Kings kept feeding them, kept, kept feeding him in those situations. And uh, Sabonis ends up with probably one of his roughest overall statistical games. But, you know, still, if you're going to have a bad night and you're going to go for like 14 points, 16 rebounds, 7 assists, 
eight turnovers was brutal. Um, he did get in foul trouble early uh, with a couple of silly fouls, really silly fouls. Um, but if that's going to be your bad game um, and you still win, I think I'm going to take it some of the time, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, I still think that Sabonis, I, I think Sabonis's turnovers and the rough game was more of a product of, like you said, OKC really focusing on him and, and these double teams. And they felt like um, the Kings, that is, that this was a game that we wanted to get a lot of Domas post-ups, post-ups in. Um, I'd been saying, like, I think they need to work that offense into their scheme a little bit more. Um, and I, I see the logic in why this is the team to do that. But I do think that, kind of like you said, they forced it a little bit too much. Um, and, yeah, I mean, also the lack of, spacing like we're gonna say for the rest of this season really yeah the spacing is always going to be an issue and I, I mean that's why teams are able to go and clamp down on Sabonis because you don't have true three-point shooters um, all around you know knock down three-point shooters this team really is struggling from the perimeter since the big trade um, that's not just because of Buddy Hill it's because of Buddy Hill and uh, Tyrese Halliburton, who again is an excellent three-point shooter, and uh, and to be honest, this team hasn't been a great three-point shooting team all season long, even with those guys. It's not been percentage-wise one of the better teams in the league at three-point shooting, and uh, they're that's going to have to be like where they attack in the off-season. Um, you bring up the post-up thing, and when I watched Sabonis specifically against the Thunder. They did try to shift him down into the, uh, I think it was the right block, a lot, a lot of the time. And what we see mostly from this team is the the Kings running a high post with with Sabonis. And, and on the opposite side of the court, a lot of two-man game with De'Aaron Fox. Just what were your thoughts on like sort of the design and where they tried to attack the Thunder? Yeah, I think it was okay. I think I came to realize how difficult it is for guys like De'Aaron to make that entry pass because the guy guarding De'Aaron is just going to fall so far back into Domas and make that so difficult. Um, So I think that maybe like a guy like Davion is a good one to make that entry, but he's probably got to get a little bit better at placing that. Or even we saw Trey Lyles start to be the one to make that entry pass a couple times. Um, So... I don't, I don't mind it. I think that there needed to be a little bit more movement. There was one turnover where I think Sabonis kind of dribbled himself into a bad situation under the rim um, and then was falling out of bounds. And all four teammates were still just standing at the perimeter. And he was kind of surveying while he was falling out, but nobody was cutting and there were open lanes. And then after, I think that he was kind of telling everybody like, what's going on? Why is nobody moving? He might have been frustrated at the refs and talking to them and maybe I'm misreading that, but... I think there is still aspects of just everybody else getting used to it. Um, and Alvin said, you know, that we're working on our, our splitting and things like this. But I think that they're still I, I don't mind where they're starting it from or anything like that. I think that they've got to figure out who's the most ideal guy to make that entry and then just seeing more movement from there. Like there were very clear growing pains of working out of Domas in the post, because once they went back to that um, two man game on the opposite side of the floor with Domas us higher on the floor and easier for him to get the ball in that fourth quarter offense was rolling yeah i mean that's going to be the key and i think when we saw uh we saw it in the denver game where um he got on on the left block uh had the ball three guys cut into the same spot 
Like that shows you where this team is at. They're just not in sync. They're not in rhythm with each other. They they need to build more chemistry. They need more practice time. I don't know how you time that better, uh, but it's like guys are going when they shouldn't. Other guys are not going when they shouldn't. So I think you're having these moments where everyone is standing around or everyone is doing the same exact thing, and they just don't have like some sort of sequence to to make it all work. And that's something that will come with time and with growth as a team. And, you know, realistically, you're down to 19 games. I, I don't know that it can happen this year, but I, I think that there's going to come a point where we start to see the flow better with this group. And then we see it for moments where it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, there are moments where Fox is just absolutely brilliant uh, playing in those two-man games where, you know, he just gets so hot in the mid-range uh, and just you just got to keep feeding him, keep letting him do his thing. And, you know, I think for the most part, he's he's been pretty, uh, pretty exceptional. Fox has been really, really good since uh, the Domas and, and Tyrese swap. Um, Tyrese's birthday today, by the way. And oh, uh, 22. Yeah, yeah, he's technically I just found out he's a leap year, baby. So his birthday is the 29th. So I guess it's oh. not his birthday. So he's really like six. This. Yeah. Yeah. He was saying he gets that joke a lot. Um, yeah, five, six, yeah. Yeah, something like that. So, yeah, they really traded away a young talent. Um, yeah, a very, very young talent. <laughs> good call, good call. Um, Darren, Darren has looked really, really comfortable, though. Since the uh, Domas edition, he's now averaging 26.5 points, 6.1 assists. I think this is the big thing for me these last two games, 10 assists in each of these games. Um, double doubles in both both of them. The only other double double he had this season was Game Four against Phoenix, um, and I, I think that you're just seeing him look more comfortable. And it, it's this two man game and having a big that can enable him just naturally, rather than having to figure out okay when is it my turn, when is it your turn with another ball handler like the Tyrese situation that we saw is obviously working a lot easier for um, De'Aaron, and I, I think a, it's been a fairly smooth transition for them too. And we're seeing a lot of moments of De'Aaron deciding that he's going to, even when Domas is a bench, like that he's going to turn it on and kind of take over the game on the offensive end. Or we're seeing even more of these, you know, what is probably like, if you have to think of a play that De'Aaron Fox is known for, it's going to be him going coast to coast in transition. And it felt like we didn't see the same amount of those earlier in the year. And those seem to be back in full force. Like De'Aaron just looks comfortable when he's out there. And um, I, I think that there's got to be an aspect of recognizing like this is there, there's no more excuses. People aren't going to be pointing at other things. Um, I have another all-star alongside me. It's time to do this. And he has been. Yeah, I think he has. And uh, I think I went back and looked at the numbers from January 1st on. He's averaging like 25.2 points per game. Um, it was just the first half of the season, the first, I don't know, two months of the season where he was just in a massive funk. I, I think part of it, uh, he was really, really struggling to figure out how to work with Tyrese, like how they do take turns, like what you're talking about. I looked at Halliburton stats uh this morning because you know we're gonna keep looking at him here and there and while I, I think we've closed the book on the Halliburton stuff um uh, I, I really found it interesting his usage rate was under 20 percent and his assist rate was like 30 something his usage rate with the Pacers has gone up to like 21 percent 
and his assist rate is 40. It's over 40. It's absolutely incredible because uh, I think like some people might not get what that like he's a low usage player. Like he had the ball in his hands less than Buddy Heald, less than Buddy Heald and still was able to have like an incredible amount of assists and creativity. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I, I like I was so incredibly high on him um, and why I compared him to guys like Steve Nash and, and Chris Paul. Uh, now what we're seeing with Fox is his usage is a little higher because he's a guy who does handle the ball quite a bit, um, but his assist rate has been low all season. Now we're starting to see it climb up. And I think like what we saw the DiVincenzo, the pass he made to DiVincenzo, that's possibly the one of the top passes in De'Aaron Fox's career. Yeah. I mean, I rem- the Chemezi Metu pass, the the one that where he hit Metu in the corner for the the game winning three, that was a spectacular pass. But nothing like what we saw out of the DiVincenzo, uh, the pass to DiVincenzo, where he literally drew four players at the rim, and then all of a sudden you just see a hand come out of nowhere around someone's side and whip the ball straight to DiVincenzo for. A wide open three. I I saw someone on Twitter say something like, "Man, if Di Vincenzo blew, I think it was Bryant West. If if Di Vincenzo blew that assist, that like it, they would have been so angry because that yeah. literally was the greatest assist in in Fox's career. And like even in live action, I saw the replay afterwards a couple of times. But in live action, it was like, holy cow! How did you do that? How did you know? And I think. Part of it is that DiVincenzo moves really well off the ball. He he is sliding around, looking for the opening, making sure that the his point guard can still see him. But also, that was just a mystical pass by Fox on a great take to the rim. Yeah, it was beautiful. It might be the best pass I've ever seen De'Aaron make. Um, the camera angle also was just amazing to see the pass. Like, it came right towards the camera, and, and that view like you talked about where you just see De'Aaron go up and you can't even quite see him anymore because there's two guys on him but then he reaches his hand out and somehow whips this right into DiVincenzo's shooting pocket um, and glad it went down and then right after De'Aaron gets a steal on the other end and then runs back in transition for a layup Um, it was a great sequence from him he really had moments of again doing whatever he wanted against OKC Um, I think that where the growth needs to come for him now is on the defensive end and you know I think we've been saying this all year probably all throughout his career but now that he doesn't have such a large offensive responsibility um, which maybe I should step that back a little bit because he still does um, but I think that he can learn to pick his moments to maybe defer to Domas a little bit while he's out there Um, he has another running mate and I think he just needs to be able to be more locked in on defense because more often than not, it feels like you can see that he recognizes that that is his rotation, but he's not making a full out effort to get there um, or staying in front of guys. Like you see one or two possessions a game where it's like, wow, that was really good individual defense from De'Aaron, but he just doesn't do it every single possession. And I mean, he's played more than 40 minutes in three of the last four games. Like I, I get the aspect of, He's exerting so much energy out there on offense that he can't do it every time on defense, but it needs to be more often on defense. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I, I 
Like, look, it's really hard to judge an individual player when the team defense is so horrendous. I mean, it is. And, like, I, we, we can judge each of them individually. Um, I think just instinctually, he doesn't have, like, just to compare him to what we saw out of Halliburton, I think he stays in front of his man better than Halliburton. He's stronger than Halliburton. But Halliburton has a knack for reading the passing lanes that's just elite. Like his ability to, even on the baseline, some of the steals he would get on the baseline, um, I, I thought was spectacular. I thought the steal you talked about was one of the few times that I've seen Fox jump a uh, a passing lane in a long time. And it was, he got a, a fingertip on it and then grabbed it and boom, he was gone. I kind of wish that that Fox would work a little bit with like a defensive back coach in the in the offseason on reading stuff, on reading coverages and stuff like that. Uh, I also think that like having Fox work with Doug Christie all summer is something that has to happen. Like I, I want Doug and and Fox like uh, you know completely connected at the hip so he can work with him on the finer nuances. Even when Fox puts his hands out wide, he's still off balance. You can see that he he isn't able to go forward and backwards without losing his uh, about his balance or his momentum a little bit and that's it's about body positioning it's about getting his feet in the right spot uh, he needs work on that end and i think the focus is to get him up to speed as like the lead ball handler for you know so much of the time but the other thing i'll say brennan like there might be like three point guards in the league that are good at defense like, like, none of these guys, right. I mean... He doesn't need to be good, net. he just needs to be not horrible. And yeah, he has I mean, been horrible at times this year. Yeah, Steve Nash was, like, not a good defender. Uh, even, you know, Steph Curry has gotten better as a defender, but for a huge portion of his career, just not a good defender at all. Most point guards are not good defenders, and and you could argue with me on that, but... Like you have some guys that are just specifically defenders and they really aren't passers or, or scorers guys like Pat Bev, um, you know, even guys like Davion, like where they don't have to be a primary scorer or anything. They exert all their energy on the defensive end, but I, I've never looked at Fox and said, he's the worst defender I've ever seen. And maybe the stats say that he are, that he is, but I'll just tell you like playing alongside bad defenders does not help you. It doesn't help you at all, and he has played along bad defenders, alongside bad defenders for a good portion of his career. He's also had, I think, three defensive coordinators in the last three years, which puts him, like, even before that in the Dave Yeager era, I don't think they had a defensive coordinator like they have the last couple of years. But, uh, you know, there has been no consistency. There has been no, like, they've gone from a switching to a non-switching to a switching to a non-switching, like, back and forth, like, his whole career and, you know, I don't think that the consistency with the coaching staff and with the personnel has been there to really say, like, look, it's all on you that you're a bad defender at this point. Yeah. And I, I think that it's there's a lot of moments where I think that I guess I don't I don't view De'Aaron as a bad defender, as a horrible defender. Um, I think my frustration more often than not is seeing possessions where it's like you're better than that. Um, and I, I think that there's some understanding, um, there with, again, the offensive burden that he has or the other defensive guys surrounding him. 
and that's not where he's expected to be a difference maker. But I think that just as this team starts to get a little bit better and really, you know, ideally like going into next year fighting for like an eight seed sort of thing that or for example, in these big games against San Antonio, New Orleans, like, like I just want to see more often possessions where he is locked in on defense and not making mistakes. I think that's all it is. It's just he doesn't need to be the difference maker on defense or anything like that. He just needs to not be a weak point. Um, and I think that he's certainly capable of that. And I, I think that we'll see that more often. I think he's acknowledged it. Like the same thing in, in the last recording, I talked about how um, he said, you know, we can't let those games go to waste that Domas has. Um, and he said that he needs to be better and that we all need to be better defensively. Like he's very aware that he needs to be better on defense, I think. And um, I, I do think that'll happen. It just, I still need to see it a little bit more consistently. Um, and I, I think it shows the coaching staff's belief in him that at the end of the game, when Shea is their clear number one and has 30 plus that De'Aaron is still the guy guarding him down the stretch with Dante out there still. I don't know that I agree with that decision, but it shows a lot in their trust in him defensively. Yeah. I, I mean, he didn't, and that's, I think of like misconception too, with this Kings team, they switch so often that you can't just look at like what the other point guards like shooting percentage and points scored were like this team switches all the time. And sometimes they get caught in bad switches. Sometimes one guy switches and one guy doesn't. That was a huge issue during the buddy healed era where one guy is literally like not doing the good defensive game plan that everyone else is doing. And so it, it exposes other players. And I don't mean like buddy's not playing defense. I mean, it was almost like he read a defensive, a different defensive game plan where he wasn't going to switch on specific plays, and then others he was. And the next thing you know, you got two guys guarding one guy and one guy left open all the time. And so I think that that was an issue. I, they still uh, defensive issues, and people say, "Oh, are we not going to talk about defense anymore?" It's like, man, the Kings started another new guy last night. Like this team has been together like a couple of days. Like, uh, like, I don't even know how Alvin Gentry's doing it, but realistically, it, it's really difficult to, to like, throw together a lineup to try new things, to test out things. Um, and, and then, you know, before we leave the De'Aaron Fox discussion, um, since, since he's been back from injuries, averaging 27 points, 6.1 assists, 4.4 rebounds, he's shooting 50.6% from the field, 35% from three, and you know what, uh, I, I was looking at, I was digging into his stats a little bit, and you just wrote, uh, again, you wrote a piece on De'Aaron Fox and, and his mid-range jumper, but I'll point this out. Like, this season, uh, you know, Fox is at 22 points per game. He's down, like, three points per game. And you can easily look and see where the three points are. Like, it, it, there's no question. Like, you can see them. So, number one, the NBA decided to change in the whole first half of the season. They decided to change how they were going to call players attacking the rim and unnatural moves. All these points of emphasis, they last about two or three weeks. Sometimes they last six weeks, but then they go away and you don't even hear about them anymore. So we don't hear about the points of emphasis of unnatural moves anymore, right? Well, that cost De'Aaron Fox a tremendous amount of free throw attempts early in the season. He's down, I think it's around 0.9 free throw attempts per game or Maybe it's 1.1 free throw attempts per game. But if you work in his average and all that stuff, it it takes about, you know, 0.8, 0.9 of a point off. 
The other thing that De'Aaron Fox has done is not only is he not shooting the three well, but the problem is that he shied away from you shooting the three once it went south for him. And that's the worst thing you can do if you're a guy who needs to space the floor for yourself. If you need to hit a three-point shot, so guys, stop going under the screen instead of, you know, basically guys against good shooters have to go over the screen. Guys against bad shooters go under the screen. Well, when you go under the screen, that means that the screen doesn't really help you, you know, so you still have this guy sitting in front of you where if Fox could hit a few more threes, it would space the floor for himself. Like he would be able to find a lot more room to play with if he could hit a three. So on the season, he's down um, 1.7 attempts per game, which that's a lot. If if you're if you take into consideration they shot like 32.2% from the field, I mean from three last season, and you put those 1.7 uh attempts per game you know back on there you're literally looking at like 0.7.8 threes per game more for him to hit which means like that's that's a lot that's that's basically 2.1 points per game that's exactly where his his scoring is down it's down at the three-point line and it's down because he's averaging one less uh free throw attempt per game or, or uh, 1.1 less free throw attempt per game. So I think these are areas where he knows, right? Because I asked him about what's your goal like to finish the season. Like personally, he said, everyone knows like I've shot the ball poorly all season. I, I need to get better, right? And, and at least there's self-realization. And I'm hoping that this is a summer where we don't see a step backwards. We see, we see major steps forward. Yeah, and the decrease in in volume has just all been pull-ups, really. Um, you know, last year he was a really good catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. I see 1.5 attempts per game on catch-and-shoot and 39.3%. Um, and then on pull-ups, 3.8 attempts per game on 30%. And that 3.8 per game this year has gone down to 2.4 and from 30% to 22.9. Um, and I do think it's that... When guys are going under, he's he's not maybe punishing as often, like you kind of pointed out. I think that since Domas has joined, we've seen them kind of start to set screens a little bit lower, um, kind of within the arc sometimes. And it almost seems like he's grown a comfort with his mid-range shot, um, where it's like, you know, I, I'm not hitting the three at a great rate, but I know that I can get to the elbow and pull up with hardly any... Um, contestion from the opposition where it's like, why would I just not shoot that every single time? And I don't hate the logic, um, but undeniable that he needs to get better as a three-point shooter. Yeah. What was his, uh, what's his shooting percentages uh, inside the arc from your research? Uh, yeah. He's, 50% of his shots are coming from the mid-range, which is four feet extended to the three-point line. And he's knocking down 46% of them. Um, he's not hitting them at like a stellar rate or anything like that. But I think that with the volume that he's taking, he is hitting it at, um, at at a good rate. I don't think it's a phenomenal shot or anything. But I think the idea is that if you're hitting that more often, then if the guy defending you has to even take half a second to think when you hesitate that he might pull up right here, that it should allow you to get to the rim even more often. So I think the mid-range value to me is that... Yeah, you can get that shot wherever you want, but then also that adds 
another layer of what the defense has to think about that should eventually just been, be able to enable you to get to the rim even more often because the best shot for De'Aaron Fox is going to be at the rim. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, he's a great finisher. He, he really is. And, you know, he's, he's gotten better as a finisher as he's gotten stronger. Um, and, and then just to do, like, the the advanced, like, if you're shooting 46, would you say 46 point what? Uh, I just have 46%. Okay, straight at 46. So uh, that's worth 0.92 points per possession, right? Uh, a two-pointer times 0.46. Um, so it's worth 0.92 uh, shots per possession. A corner three, if you're shooting 40% from the corner three, that's worth 1.2. So every time back and forth down the court, you're losing like 0.3 if you're giving up corner threes, which the Kings do. But, uh, you know, league-wide, I think the average from the corner is like right around 40%, 38 to 40%. Corner three is like the easiest shot. Fox doesn't take that many corner threes. Um you know, so so anyway, I, I think there's a way for him to be a lot more efficient as a scorer. Um, but I, I think what we're seeing him living in the the mid range and then getting to the basket, uh, there's a lot of growth that can happen there. And I think a lot of it is going to be predicated on his ability to work with Sabonis and get better and better shots. And he hasn't had a rebounder like Sabonis. So even if he does miss those mid range shots, Sabonis is ripping down rebounds and and doing damage in the post, which is fun to watch because that dude's a bear when he's going in for an ox. like those. Yeah, an ox. Yes, he is an ox <laughs> uh, when he's going in for those those shots. Um, and they've never gotten anything... shooting around him. Like, how have you never gotten three really good shooters, four really good shooters around De'Aaron Fox? Like, I, he hasn't had ideal spacing. Like, maybe the Jaeger year, right, with Cauley Stein oh. running in transition and – Buddy Harrison, I guess you could say at times earlier this year, but it's poor decision makers at the same time. Like they need, they need shooting. And that's why Trey Lyles was kind of refreshing, I guess. Uh Uh-oh. I hear something. It's Tuesday over reactions. (laughs) You got me. Uh, Tuesday overreact. Well, you're the one with a great segue. So, I, I mean, look, uh, we've been talking about this forever, that the Kings need more three-point shooters. Um, enters Trey Lyles on stage stage right. As we all expected. Left. Yeah, like, here comes Trey Lyles. Uh, like, look, uh, we talked about this when they traded for Trey Lyles, that I look at Trey Lyles as a player archetype. Um, and what I mean by that is... You put a player out there that does specific things like space the floor, uh, shoot the three ball, um, and you give that player, whether he's going to be the answer long term or a player like him, you start building your offense around the players that you have and you start filling in these pieces and saying, what does he look like? What will that style of player look like with this group? And uh, I, I was as shocked as anyone when we got... I don't know, what was it? Um, it was it a 5 o'clock game yesterday? So 4.30 in the afternoon, we got a uh, a notice that Trey Lyles was starting. Um, Trey Lyles got that notice earlier that morning. Uh, we didn't ask about the starting lineup because we just assumed that it was going to be the same starting lineup that it had been. Um, but uh, Alvin Gentry went away from Mo Harkless completely. Mo Harkless either plays major minutes and <laughs> starts or he does not play at all. Yeah. Um, 
him, Chimezi um, Metsu, all fall into this. Yeah. Lyles falls into this. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, well, I don't know. What are, what were your initial thoughts on Trey Lyles? Because to be honest, I had watched him the previous two games and was like, meh. Like, I, even though in a small sample size, like, I just, I don't know how that's going to work. And defensively, I still don't know how that's going to work. But what were your initial thoughts? I think that, like you're saying, he watching what Trey Lyles did is the best pitch that you can make for a P.J. Washington, a John Collins this offseason, um, the player archetype, right? And you probably saw what is going to be, this is the third time, I believe, all season that Lyles has logged more than 20 points in a game, and he was playing on the Detroit Pistons earlier this year. Um, so I, I certainly don't think that this is to be expected with him, but the idea of just having a four that can stretch the floor, and I know he only went one of four from deep, but he has the threat of a long ball, and I was impressed with his offensive versatility. Like, you know, he was able to attack closeouts and put the ball on the floor. He had one or two dunks at the rim um, doing that. He moved the ball quickly. I, I never had a moment where it's like I felt like the ball was sticking with him. Um, like we've seen, you know, with, with Buddy or Bagley earlier this year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was impressed, and he still rebounds at a good rate. I think that when you're playing a team that has more than one offensive threat, that they'll probably be able to attack and expose Lyles on the defensive end a little bit more. Um, but I I don't mind it because the fours that you're working with, you're giving up, you're going to really struggle somewhere, right? If you're going Mo Harkless and he's one of your most impactful defenders if not the best defender that's on his team but he's really struggling on offense and obviously this team really needs spacing I like going towards Lyles or Metu and I kind of think Lyles is maybe just a little bit of a better version for this team um, with more shooting rather than more cutting to me is the difference between Lyles and Metu there but I'd rather go with the offensive guy than the defensive with this roster because Mo Harkless isn't fixing your defense he I think he can be a cog in a good defense but he's not going to make your defense good by himself out there. But actually having a four that is respected from distance and able to help you reach what could be like a top 10 offense as we wind down this season, I'd rather look towards that. So I was encouraged with what I saw from Lyles. I don't think it's something that we're going to see night in and night out, but I wouldn't mind him kind of being the closing four down the stretch here. Also is telling that they need a better closing four in time but yeah yeah i liked what we saw i i did like uh overall i i mean i i, I the closeout stuff like teams were running out on him so hard because they're like oh no that's a shooter we got to go get him where i don't think that i see that with a lot of the other king shooters and then uh, he didn't just have like one or two dunks i think he had like four and he tried for like six and one of them me i think he missed one of them he got fouled um i did not expect that at all because you know chemezi metu is an above the rim player where where trey lyles you you looked at you're like okay no he's ground base um but i was surprised that he got his big body up in the air and went for some hammer dunks and i was like oh look at that um overall like it wasn't just that it was his feel for the game it was him driving in once they they stopped his drive once they realized that he was going to do that he kicked it back out for a wide open three 
I, I thought he he showed some passing skills. He is a high basketball IQ player. You can see it like right away. Like, oh look, he he does get it. He understands, and I think he also understands his own limitations, which is good. Um, but then we also saw like Darius Baisley like just go over the top of him a couple of times early in the game, where it was like, oh, well that's not good. I, I mean, they were able to stop some of that stuff, uh, but I, again if he's on this roster next year and he's a very, very cheap option for next season, like it's almost like league minimum. I think it is league minimum. I think two it's 2.6. Yeah. 2.6 million dollars. Yeah. I mean, just sign him up because if he can do, if he can do that every once in a while, that's fine. But if he's your, your third or fourth big, then that's fine. Like, I, I think that I'm, I'm comfortable with that, but at the same time, I think it brings us to the other discussion like we know you need Trey Lyles, that type of player, but he has to be able to block shots because that's the other thing that's missing from this team right now. You need that guy, but you need a more offense. I mean, a more athletic defensive minded version of that. Even if it's not a, an elite defender, a guy who can at least block some shots. And that's where I think we start getting into the John Collins, uh, even Baisley, uh, like, and and uh, some of the other players around the league that um, that really do fit what the Kings need. Um, what uh, PJ Washington, you know, he's in the mm-hmm. top ten for power forwards and and shot blocking at like point nine blocks per game, even though he's only averaging twenty five minutes a game. That's not bad, but you know, you need a weak side shot blocker to go with Sabonis because, like, if not, the Kings don't have a lot of rim protection. They have a lot of uh, like. Sabonis eats space in the in the key and makes life difficult for people, but they don't have a true natural shot blocker. Yeah, I think Jeremy Grant kind of falls into this. Maybe the shooting isn't amazing, but he's upwards of a block a game. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think it's an issue that this team is just desperately needs that prototype that isn't exactly the easiest thing to get? Like, I, I think that they can. It's certainly possible, but... Do you think that that's a poor team building um, just that we're seeing that like the final piece you need is so specific? I don't think so, because to be honest with you, like that's what the Kings hoped they had in Marvin Bagley. You know, they thought that they they were drafting basically. I mean, even if they were drafting Jaron Jackson um that it's kind of that player right it's a guy who can block shots and hit threes and get you some rebounds uh marvin bagley was a much much better rebounder he is a much better rebounder than sharon jackson um and he's not nearly the three-point shooter that you thought he was i mean people forget marvin bagley shot almost 39 percent on threes in his uh in his long season at duke like that that was a guy you thought you were getting to space the floor and to be honest we're in the same situation again heading into the draft if if you can't go get one of those players using your pick or using a guy like Rashawn Holmes or something like that. And again, the the problem that you have with Rashawn Holmes is Rashawn Holmes can block shots. He can get you rebounds. He just can't shoot the three. And I mean, he's shot the three, but if he could shoot the ball five, you know, if he could shoot five threes a game, we're talking a, a totally different conversation. Like Rashawn Holmes is going to play a lot of minutes alongside Sabonis. Um, but so you need a Miles you, Turner. <laughs> you do, but you need power forward version of Miles Turner. 
like you need a a like more agile guy who can defend that again a, a small i mean a power forward or even a, a, if you had an elite shot blocking small forward sure you know like even a, a guy he's he's older but like we talked about robert covington robert covington would work along uh, robert covington averages like 1.2 blocks per game but a lot of covington's blocks come in man on coverage they don't come as a as an off ball uh shot blocker so uh, so like, look, I, I think we, we see a player type that they have to get, whether they can get it or not is a question mark. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it leads, like, I remember a couple of years ago, maybe like two seasons ago, I'm doing draft, uh, mock drafts. There was only one stretch four in the entire first round and it was Zeke and Najee. That's it. There was, so like, I think we went through a drought here of a, like two or three years where there isn't that player. And now we get to this year's draft, and man, Brandon, it sure does look like, like you got to get lucky in the lottery, but it sure does look like there's a bunch of these dudes in, in this specific draft. So this might be the one draft where you could get that guy and even an elite version of that guy if you got lucky in the lottery. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of reliance on adding that guy this offseason, and the best way to do that is by I think the best asset that you can have to work with when it comes to acquiring that guy whether it be drafting them or trading um, would be just getting the best draft pick possible like Jabari Smith Jr. is going to be the absolute dream for this team but I think any team is going to say that about a guy that could possibly go number one Um, so yeah I mean I think it's definitely interesting and and to the point of like you know Bagley was supposed to be that guy I think that Woodard weirdly shows that like they know they need that prototype you know I I know that Woodard didn't work out but he's the idea of a Mo Harkless type where it's like this guy he shot really well his second year at Mississippi State State from three and then also was on was a good weak side rim protector and and difference maker on the defensive end like obviously Woodard didn't work out but that's showing they recognize the need for that prototype um, and absolutely have to chase it this offseason I'm you know, if we can get optimism with Fox and Sabonis growing alongside one another, flashes from Davion and Dante, and you're still kind of losing games and end up with a top four pick, it's weirdly the best case scenario in my mind. It is the best case scenario. I mean, especially if you get lucky and you're one one or two. Like, I think Chet Holmgren can play alongside uh, DeMontis Sabonis. And mm-hmm. that guy, I mean, holy cow. I mean, he's real thin, but if you have him next to the Ox and he can shoot the three, he's an incredible rebounder. He averages four point like 4.7 blocks per 36. Like that, again, it's a dream. It's a dream type player that fits alongside him. We also looked up, uh, there's a guy. We're having technical difficulties. I think we're back. I am here. All right, we're back. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, and, and it's still in the same recording, so we'll just keep going. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you can land a top two pick in this year's draft, I think that you can find that guy. But I, I also think there are a couple other guys uh, that are floating around. Um, again, like Keegan Murray is a little bit older prospect, which might actually work with the Kings. But these are uh, athletic 3 and D type fours, uh, guys that can really space the floor, can – uh, block shots and, and you know might grow into something like uh, young Robert Covington or or much much better if you get up in the top tier of the draft. 
Um, so I, I think there's at least some positives there. And you were you were saying that like that draft pick might be like the the end all be all for this team. Yes, and it's a tough situation to be in because I think that while that is the best case scenario, you have to make sure that you're keeping that same optimism that the guys on the roster that you're planning on moving forward with, with Fox and specifically Domas, um, that they feel and can recognize that path as something that they're okay with and being acceptable. You know, like I'm sure that any one of these players would really want to make the play in. Like, I, I think it'd be hard if you ask a player, would you rather get a top four pick or make the play in? More often than not, I would think the competitiveness of these guys, like I want to win every single game that I'm out there. Um, so I think that as long as you can keep them with an understanding and an optimism within themselves of why a draft pick would be so good for the future of this team, because it's about more than this season, then that's just an important aspect of this as well, that Domas has got to keep this feeling that he has of excitement and want to be in Sacramento because you know if, if you're kind of losing out a lot at the end of this season I think it's very easy for there to be some Kang's vibes emerging and around this team yeah some negativity you got to keep the negativity out um, we were going to talk about this early in the pod but uh, it fits in much better right here um, the Kings uh, just they're they're on a five game stretch here it's OKC uh pelicans on wednesday night thursday night back to back against the spurs uh what is it saturday against um dallas in dallas and then they come home to face the uh the new york Knicks. knicks on on monday this five games realistically it will decide whether or not this team has any shot at all at the play in if you slip up here um if you slip up more than one game then you have no shot if you slip up uh, you know, if three games, if you lose three of these five, uh, they got one out of the way, but now the, the remaining four, they still need to win three, at least out of these four, if they have any shot. And even still, they got to win the right ones. They've got to beat the Pelicans. They've got to beat the Spurs. They've got to beat, uh, you know, they've got to beat the Knicks, but, uh, you know, Dallas is one team that is actually a playoff, uh, like a fully in the playoffs. But after you get through this stretch, the schedule just goes like horrifically bad for the Kings and uh, Brendan, they have, uh, I think of the final 15 games, um, 10 of them are against playoff teams. Um, I think a couple of them are against really, really high end playoff teams. They only have five games against sub 500 teams. Uh, But this is like, this is do or die this week. And then if you do lose this week, I think you do kind of just experiment and put everything like a, on autopilot a little bit and, and try to play this thing out and, and just give yourself um, give yourself a chance to move up in, in the in the lottery standings. Yeah, um, after that five-game stretch that you pointed out, they, the second home game is against Denver, and then there's this stretch where it's horribly tough, kind of like you were talking about, Utah, championship-caliber yep. team, Chicago, championship-caliber team, Milwaukee's the same, Boston is playing like one of the best teams in the league right now. Phoenix championship caliber team. That's one, two, three, four, five games in a row of teams that probably have their eyes on going to the conference finals, if not further. Um, So, 
you know what? I mean, I guess that's also an opportunity where if you win three of those games, you could have some really great momentum and a good feeling around this team. Um, I wouldn't bet on it, but I guess you can view it as an opportunity. But really, it's more so they need to capitalize going into that stretch because if you're going into that, just having lost against Dallas, New York, and Denver three times in a row, and then you're going into Chicago, Milwaukee, Boston, Utah, like it, it's lights out. It's it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Because at that point, like you start looking at some of the 500 teams. Like I think they do play late in the season. They play New Orleans again, right? Uh, they have two games against Houston. Um, New Orleans twice. Uh, I want to say play, they, have, they do play Indiana, who they're Indiana. rubbing shoulders with in standings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's just a really interesting way that the, we're going to know. We're probably going to know right now if this team has any shot at all. If they get through this, then it's like, okay, look, you can't just lose every single game to every one of those good teams. You have to pick off like two or three wins to compete and get there. And if you got hot somehow, like there's a possibility like the Lakers like just completely fall out of this thing and there's two spots open. It's just the Kings are down so many in the loss column. I think it's seven still uh, in the loss column, which is just hard to make up. And the Kings are running out of time to make up space. I think it's it's good conversation just because, um, you know, whether they make it or not, there's still going to be a, a top 10 lottery team. It doesn't matter at this point. I mean, there there aren't enough teams that can jump above them, uh, and or they can lose more games than they can, and, and get into the lottery, get a better lottery team, uh, lottery spot, uh, you know, in the upcoming draft. And so I, I think it's uh, you might as well go for it at this point. And then if if things go south, you're not even tanking at that point. You're just like it is what it is. You're gonna lose a good percentage of the games. Even if you tried, even if you tried really hard, and one last thing, Gentry, Brendan, Gentry's gonna try, right? Sure, he's gonna try. Line. He's gonna try, but uh, you know, the Kings won last night in OKC. Uh, they were one in sixteen on the road since December first, coming into that game. So they're now oh two God. and sixteen on the road, and we're talking about a group of road wins that they've got to get. And again, like the the two games against Houston late in the season, those are both in Houston. Like, this team ran out of home games back in December. Like, when, when you were losing all those games, yeah, all of them were on home at home. Like, that, they had this crazy stretch where, all you know, they their schedule was so unbalanced that now you're getting all these road games, and if you can't win on the road, they were 6-6 six and six at one point on the road. And after yesterday's win, they're 8 and... 22. 22. Jeez. Jeez, and yeah. they're still below 500 at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brutal. Um, uh, go ahead. Real quick, curious for you. Um, you know, we're talking about needing to make a move this offseason, which I think we've talked about for a little while. And I think the obvious trade piece is Rashawn Holmes. And he's missed mm-hmm. two games now with back soreness. Um, Gentry said in pregame that three games with back soreness. Gentry said in pregame uh, before OKC that Holmes was probably going to play. And then uh, we get our update 30 minutes before that he wasn't. Is this weird to you or? No. Okay. So um, the Rashawn, it's a good question though. Um, so if you remember back to when we went to the two practices leading up to the, the first Denver game coming out of the break, 
um, Rashawn Holmes, uh, Alvin Gentry made a point to bring up Rashawn Holmes and say how good he looked. I think Rashawn Holmes is like the stress of the situation um, is it, tough. Like this is this isn't a normal situation at all. He's had a horrific season between the eye injuries and COVID and then all of a sudden your team goes out and trades for a two-time all-star 25-year-old center that plays your position. Um, nothing went as planned for Rashawn Holmes. And I actually believe he's having back problems. I, I would even venture to say that it's possible that they're stress-related. Like, I'm a guy who's had back problems for uh, decades. Um, you know, a lot of times when I'm sitting here in this chair, uh, I can't get up to walk out of this chair because um, I have a herniated disc and I have bulging discs and um, like it's, it's, it's unbearable. Um, but a lot of issues with my back, especially when I was younger was stress related. Whenever I was under stress, I would feel it there. And I think that there's a good possibility that, that Holmes is like, this is tough. Like once you, you tweak something, once you have something tighten up, uh, and you're six foot 10, um, you know, we're talking about a big man with the, with the sore back and I'm not going to question Holmes at this point. Um, even if he was playing, I don't think it, you know, he's not going to be playing more than like 10 to 15 minutes a night. Uh, and then, you know, what it's done is uh, against OKC, we saw once again that when you need Damian Jones to step in and have a moment, he can have a moment. And I I'm okay with Damian Jones finishing out this year and Rashawn Holmes missing a bunch of time. Um, not because, you know, I, I want him out of Sacramento, uh, no, it was very specific that I just think that his time in Sacramento is coming to an end one way or another, just because that's the dynamic of the roster and how you move forward. I don't think you bring him back next year. Uh, you know, there are circumstances where you bring him back if you, you do something crazy like trade DeMontis Sabonis. Um, but I think overall, I think we can all see the writing on the wall. He can too. It's a stressful situation. It doesn't feel good. It's not something that's easy to like quantify like how much stress you can be under in this situation but again i i think he's a good dude and this thing is kind of gone a completely different way than anyone thought it would yeah makes sense um totally understand why it's a very complicated and stressful situation for him um sad to see it kind of just get derailed so fast for him. Like, he was so good last year. The conversation last year was when Holmes goes off the floor, this team sucks. Um, and just changed so fast. But I think that, um, you know, t the league should have an understanding of well, who Rashawn Holmes is. And mm -hmm. hopefully this doesn't, you know, mess with the value that Sacramento's working with all too much. I don't really believe it will. I, I don't believe in, in value. Uh, like, you know, we always talk about like showcasing players and stuff like that. I think there are times where you do need to show that a player is healthy enough to play. Like, like for example, Marvin Bagley, you need to give a team like 20, 25 games to say, hey, look, he can play. He is actually healthy enough to play. We're just not playing him. Um, I also think there are other situations like Buddy Hield, where contractually you sign a guy and you know, he has to play his, um, he has incentives to play 72 games. He has incentives to, you know, finish in the top five and three point shots, uh, and three point makes like he has all these incentives. Well, those incentives, um, you know, sometimes play into the fact that you kind of do have to play him or you're going to hear it. You're, it's going to become an issue behind the scenes. 
I think with a guy like Holmes, this is just uh, such a specific situation where everyone knows that he's no longer going to be the starter. And if you were still running the same style of team that you were before, then Holmes makes a ton of sense. Like he makes a ton, a ton of sense for Charlotte. He makes a ton of sense for a bunch of teams that, you know, whether he's starting or if he's coming off the bench, Chicago would should love to have him on their roster um, to go, you know, with Vucevic because he can go out there and do some of the things that, that you need, uh, you know, defend the perimeter. He can be the backup guy that gives you a different look. Like there's going to be a market for him and his salary is, is perfect for who he is as a player. If it were an $18 million salary, like he wanted, then you're talking about problems um, and you got to keep up value. But I don't think we're in that situation with Holmes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, definitely makes sense. All right. I think we're going to do it. We're going to get to the business of basketball. Um, this is a, it's a fun segment, right? And, and I think the, it's different when we have everyone else, when we have different people on. So like when Amit came on, we, we talked about, I think the bubble, um, with Sean, you know, we, we dug deep into our bag of, of historical events. Uh, but with Brendan, I think it, it gives us an opportunity to look at events through a young reporter's eyes, which I, to me is really cool to do. Uh, because you do get jaded, you do get kind of like caught up in all of this. And so today's business of basketball topic um, is, Brennan, you can take this any way that you want, but what's the, the most difficult story you've had to write or most difficult topic you've had to cover, the most difficult, you know, one of those things where it either was emotional or it was just hard or you got into the numbers and they went sideways on you, uh, whatever it was, what are you, what are you feeling? Well, I think kind of generally throughout this season, it's been just being very careful with my wording of, I mean, because we see these guys, and I think that's just new to me, of where when I'm really frustrated with Buddy Heald, um, my wording maybe is a little bit just more careful now than it was before of where I'm just not going to be yeah, I, I still, you know, need to be critical and everything. I think as long as you can defend your point with reasonably to if you were to get confronted or anything like this is, is how I've thought about it, that you're fine. But it's just like I, I think I just had to think about it too often at times earlier this year where I was just like, man, I don't know if I want to say this or and it was just overthinking so much earlier this year until I kind of got comfortable. Um, and so I think that that's like my vague answer, but um, throughout the specific time this year, it's got to be like that Boston and Atlanta loss when they were on the road, because at that point of the season, it turned into, you're not analyzing the game. You're analyzing kind of the mental of this team and how they've broken. And think that's tough for me because I really like the nuances of the game and, and asking specific questions about why X or Y didn't happen on the floor. Um, and once you see those games like that where you're losing 50 and the team is just absolutely giving up and I don't know, I don't want to go there and just hear about rebounding, live ball turnovers 
and a lack of pace. Like once it got to that point in the year where it was not, it was more than just what you were seeing on court and a failed scheme or failed execution or anything like this, that that was really tough for me because um, I haven't had too much of an issue asking questions in pressers, but there was a weak stretch there where I was like, I do, I had to call you and be like, James, how do I approach this? Because I don't know what I'm supposed to ask right now. I, yeah, I, I love it. Like when you've covered a team for so long, you start to get used to when this, these things happen. And, um, and, and so you do get, you get jaded. Um, I think you saw the level of intensity with the questions crank up. I think there are a couple of times where you were stunned with some of the questions that either I asked or Sean asked, or even Jason Anderson asked, there comes a point where like accountability becomes so incredibly important where you can't just keep saying, oh, well, it's Luke Walton's fault or, oh, it's Alvin Gentry's fault. It's like, no, man, it's it's you. It's you, the player, that just did what you did. And there's a funny way that, just so people understand this, like we can request people to talk to following a game, but that's not the way it typically works. The way it typically works is the team gives you who they want you to talk to, which is usually like, the one guy on the team that actually had a good game when they got drubbed by 60, you know, or 50, whatever it might be. So you got some guy coming out. I don't know if it's Chemezi Metu or Damian Jones, who like went eight of 14 from the field and actually had a solid game. And they're, they're kind of like, Oh sweet. I'm getting some burn. And then they're getting grilled. They're getting absolutely torched when they get in front of the media and they're like, wait a sec, this is not what I, uh, I thought I was coming out because I had a good game. And it's like, well, no, you're coming out and now you're the one who's being held responsible for everything that happened that was wrong in the world. And that is kind of the way that it goes. Um, so I, I, I love to watch the learning process. And so people know this, Brendan asks a ton of questions, like not like he does ask questions in press conferences and, and media scrums and all that stuff. But, off the the side, like he picks a brain of guys like Sam Amick. He picks a brain of guys like myself or or Sean. Or uh, there's there's a small group of us, but that's that's why I like having him on the show because he's really bright and he's inquisitive. And so when I was coming up in this, I too felt like I got to ask a bunch of questions and I need to know. Like you have to know what you don't know. And what you don't know, you need to get better at and you need to ask questions about and you need to like trudge through and, and go through difficult moments with a team because you're learning and you're growing the entire time. And I said this a couple of times, I think on the pod, this season very specifically was not at all like basketball, like lower division course, like, uh, you know, first, second year, freshman, sophomore year of college, like NBA course. We started out that way, but that ended about like 12 games into the season when this team was no longer any good. Like that once they got bad and we didn't know why they were bad and they didn't know why they were bad. And then people start losing their jobs and like rumor mill starts uh, like cranking up. It became like this really crazy, like advanced, like, you know, PhD level 
there are moments where it was PhD level, moments where it's master's level, moments where it's like, okay, like I've I've taken this course, like junior, senior year in college, like I've been here before, but that's how I would equate it. Like when you're looking at the way that the season goes, sometimes it goes so funky that like you don't even know what to do. Like, and as a young reporter, you don't know what to say. And I, I think some of the things that Brennan talked about there, like credibility, like asking a tough question um, of Luke Walton and then having Tyrese Halliburton come in the room and razz you about the fact that you said that he basically is horrible at defense and that Luke Walton hides him all the time. There's a different level of accountability when you take on this job. It's having, and I, it used to be even greater when you're in the locker room. At this point, no one is going off on anyone in Zoom. Uh, even in like while they're at a podium, very seldom will you see a Kings player specifically go off about something that's off topic. Uh, that does happen in other situations, like like Draymond Green. Like he just like all right, he pulls the mic off, like all right, we're gonna do this, and he just starts like going whatever direction he wants to take. But that's not the Kings typically. And but when you're in the locker room, that is what you face. You face that guys will call you over to their locker and say, hey why did you write that or what did you mean by this and you have to explain yourself there's a level of accountability that's different and I I think it's good that you're getting you're getting like this experience but it's almost with like zoom training wheels uh if you will and it does get more and more difficult it's a lot more difficult and more awkward when you've torched a player in, in your writing or on a podcast and they know it and you know that they they read it or they heard it and you're in a locker room with them, and you you don't know if they're going to say something, if they're going to want to have a conversation with you or not. So I think it's good. I, I love the learning process. I love watching you learn. That's what I do, Brendan. I, I like watching your process, and I like watching you take in the information, uh, and then like how you're you're looking at things, how you're viewing things, and the like the wheels turning in your head. Because to me, that's it's fun. It's fun to like help mentor but also like watch you grow in this so you've definitely helped yeah um and i do think that it's uh, zoom training wheels is a great way to say it i'm taking it as it's helped me kind of get through that initial like ice breaking and then now i i don't think i'd be as intimidated to walk into a locker room um and yeah i think like all i think i mentioned it a couple times but i think i'll always remember the whole going to the first shoot around and you were the only one there, and then they brought us Mo Harkless, and I just didn't ask a single question, and he walked away, and I didn't even realize what happened. Um, and <laughs> I was like, that was a scrum. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, I think it was uh, yeah, definitely been a, a learning process this season. And, yeah, it's been, it's been complicated. I was at the Puke Walton game, um, which was interesting for sure. Um, and... It was pretty crazy to me that we just talked to Walton that night, and then the next morning he's fired, and I never see him again. Um, just quick as that. Same with Tyrese, right? Um, was it the day before we were out of shoot around with him, and then he yeah, was gone? Yeah, he talked about the Rising Stars game. Right. Him and Davion talked about the Rising Stars game. Yeah, so I think also getting that view of how quick that happens, that transition has been interesting. Um, yeah, it's been it's been quite a year. What's your standout for this year? Um, yeah, before I'll, I'll tell you, the only thing that I can compare to 
is it's like when you're in school and you're say you're in fifth grade and you have a buddy and and then that buddy moves away but they don't tell you they're moving away and all of a sudden you show up like on a monday and they're gone and they're not there anymore and you never ever see them again that like you do see these guys every once in a while but with a coach it's almost the same thing like if you had a teacher that you really liked or you had a teacher that you were you know that was you had conversations with all the time um and then you show up one day and the teacher's gone and you're like well where'd they go and it's like well they're not coming back and it's like oh okay so it's kind of like this weird hollow you you do get somewhat used to it but even still like a guy like ty was like oh man that's a tough one um let's see of uh, let's see this season my most difficult um oh man i don't know like i kind of enjoy when it goes dark like not not like i don't relish in it but i i kind of like sit back and like because for me uh it's about like intellectual stimulation right so like i'm I've written every losing game recap story. There is no joy in writing losing game recaps, but like every situation gives you an opportunity to like learn and see something different. And I've seen so many different things like between like relocation. uh, And and it's also, uh, I'll like, because the way I introed you was that you're the new guy on the block. But for me, it's sometimes it's the old stories that, you find out more about so like um you know when you go to talk about when you go interview someone who worked for the kings in like the 80s and 90s and all of a sudden they tell you their version of the story of the day that like ricky berry committed suicide um then you're like you're listening to something in a totally different way and or when you hear jerry reynolds talk on um like on the happy hour, Jerry Reynolds talked about Bobby Hurley. Most people like Jerry don't often talk about, uh, Ricky Berry because it was like, it was horrifically like shocking and sudden, um, and just tragic. I mean, just an absolutely, uh, absolute tragedy. But as someone who was in Sacramento as a young man and saw it play out, but then to hear the story later, that's one thing. But like when it comes to like the Bobby Hurley situation and, hearing Jerry talk about, you know, they called in a priest three times, um, like to read the final rites to Bobby Hurley. And then, you know, you know, the whole story, you piece the story together. Like those, those stories, the older stories can give you chills by hearing different angles of it, different people tell it from different perspectives. And so while the losing and all that stuff, like I've been there, I've done that. I've seen the back-to-back 40 point losses or whatever, you know, games like where it feels like that, where it feels like it's hopeless and it feels like everything's gone wrong with the team and you're just kind of trudging through. Um, like it's those other stories that, you know, you kind of gravitate towards uh, where they they have some other meaning and you're able to get something else out of them that you just didn't before. Um, almost like the like the trade re- redux, like when like Tyrese Halliburton gets traded. It is what it is. For me, it be- it's become transactional. It has for years. And, and I look at the trade, I balance out both sides. I talk about the positives. I talk about the negatives. Um, I don't like to do winners and losers. Well, I do winners and losers, but grades, I don't like to do grades. Um, because you know, these things take time to figure out, but, um, I, 
I enjoyed number one watching how Halliburton handled himself afterwards. Uh, his players' Tribune piece. You got to watch Halliburton like go through the like stages of grief in the media, which I thought was interesting. Like he took a day off, but but really to watch him go through some of the other stages of grief um, with being traded was to me those are things where I'm I'm intrigued and they draw my attention. So if that makes sense, like it's just it's just different. It's a different way of looking at things, I guess. Yeah, definitely. It's been uh, quite a season, and I wish that this Pacers game they still had coming up was at Golden One Center. It's a shame that it's not. Um, I think that would be so fun. When Ty comes back to Golden One Center is going to be a fun experience. Yeah, and when Buddy comes back, like will Buddy like try to get revenge games every time? Will he shoot? Will we live by the buddy? Will we watch a team live by the buddy or die by the buddy? <laughs> so yes, we and, will. Yes, we will. <laughs> yes, yes is the answer. Yes is the yes. answer. Uh, awesome. Um, okay, so let's close up with business. Um, number one, uh, tragedy in Sacramento, and I know Alvin Gentry talked about um, the horrific events at uh, Sacramento local church that happened. Uh, I think during the game um, on Monday night, uh, just, uh, you know, grief-stricken families and and communities out there, um, just really uh, sending a lot of love to to people who are trying to recover from a, just a really, really tragic, horrific event that, that, uh, that happened at a, a Sacramento church on Monday. Um, so I, you know, I want to make sure we mention that. Um, I also, uh, uh, Ray Lebov is, uh, is one of our media members. Um, and he does something called basketball intelligence, uh, which you may or may not have seen on Twitter. Um, but he basically, um, pulls all of like the best writing every single day and puts it out in newsletter form. Uh, really good dude, a really good man. And, uh, he had some complications this week with some health issues. And so just want to send some, uh, some positive uh, vibes to Ray. Uh, he is back. It looks like, um, but you know, these things are, are scary, especially in, in the age of COVID and everything else. Um, so, uh, but a bunch of well wishes there. Um, outside of that, uh, Brendan, do you have any final thoughts? No, just kind of want to echo what you said, um, keeping everybody that was involved or affected by the tragedy that went on in Sacramento on Monday uh, in our in my thoughts and, and wishing the best. It's, yeah, always, always crazy to hear this news and never feels real. So just want to echo what you said of wishing the best for everybody involved. Yeah, yeah, it, it's tough, uh, especially when children are involved. Um, also, you know, again, uh, well wishes to Alex Len. Um, you know, things are just cranking up and getting crazier and crazier in Eastern Europe. Um, and I, I want to, you know, keep them in your thoughts because those are really, really difficult times, um, to, to be here and watching things going completely South on a different, uh, side of the world, basically. Um, but having family members and, and all that stuff in, 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 harm's way uh so thoughts and going out to him as well uh isaiah thomas back in the league that's a positive um everyone loves it uh demarcus cousins did get signed after there's some questionable what was going to happen with him uh he did get a technical against the kings which was 
standard standard par, that's par for the course um big shout out to gary gerald who is back on the road uh after i think it's close to two years uh so love to see g-man um tweeting out at two o'clock in the morning about like sitting in his hotel room, listening to music and uh, just like living the dream. Um, I, he should live the dream as long as he wants to live the dream. And that that's one of the best men ever uh, outside of that. Uh, make sure to, you know, uh, give us a thumbs up. Uh, make sure to subscribe. Hopefully we get to a thousand uh, subscribers here on the, uh, on the YouTube channel by the end of this episode. Um, and, uh, hop on the King speed and, and jump in and get some gear, uh, become a premium subscriber, do all the stuff that we typically ask you to do here at the King speed. Uh, so for Brendan Nunes from the King's Herald and the King's pulse, I am James Ham, your King's insider for ESPN 1320 and the King's beat. We'll see you on Thursday.